Hello, everybody. Welcome to the fourth and final episode of the Hardly Working Podcast. Today's a bit different for a variety of reasons. It's me, Liam. And Owen. And then we've also got a special guest today, uh, Matt Christman. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. One of the co-hosts of the popular Chapo Trap House podcast. I think Matt is a good person to talk to because um, sort of we've been looking at the big overarching movements of the past 200 years in terms of labor history in America. And Matt, you seem to have a, from everything I've heard on, you know, Chapo and other appearances, you seem to have a very good grasp of historical happenings and, and trends. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, maybe some <laughs> others say. If, if they believe that, I'm not going to disabuse them of the notion. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Where should we start? Do you think that labor is, like, what, do you think labor is necessary in our economic system? And, like, what's, what's, what's labor's role, really? I mean, as it currently stands, I mean, organized labor is, is in the United States anyway, is, is largely uh, in eclipse. There's very little influence and power, certainly, certainly in, among private sector unions, almost none, and, and even in the public sector, uh, a, a relatively small amount. Uh, for the most part, the organized labor is sort of due to its the weak hand it has and, uh, honestly, the weakness of its leadership over the years consigned itself to the role as essentially a pressure group within the Democratic Party, one of a bunch of different interest groups all vying for attention and uh and influence within the party so that's that's where it is now i i, I heard you you draw a distinction between public and, and private sector labor groups is there one that seems to hold more sway over either policy or 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 the tone of the current conversation in general in the united states right now uh, well, it's it's public sector unions, and that's because there's a larger percentage of public sector employees are unionized. Their jobs are harder to, obviously, outsource. Uh, hmm. That doesn't mean that they have an, uh, any kind of massive influence. I mean, the Democratic Party has one of the chief sectors, I guess, that, that is that is unionized among public employees is, is teachers, and that hasn't stopped the Democratic Party from, for the last 20 years or so, embracing a lot of school choice rhetoric and ideas that that have always been resisted by organized teachers unions. But the thing is, is that they are stuck in the same dilemma that all other unions are, which is that they don't really feel that they have anywhere to go other than the Democrats. And so their leverage within the coalition is pretty limited. But even so, they have more say than the AFL-CIO or whatever, although they're, they're still around too. But and, and they're all, all of the unions, private and private, are, are still stuck in a situation where they are unable or unwilling to assert real pressure uh, on the party that is now their only vehicle for advancing their agenda, and as a result are at the mercy of what the party decides to do on these issues. Right, and it's really evident now that the Democratic Party doesn't really have any interest in any more than sort of like having an appearance of being pro-labor. Right, yeah, and that's been true for a while. Right. But as I said, without anywhere else to go and without any real willingness or ability to flex muscles through work actions, there's not much they can do about it. Right. There are a lot of opinions about this, obviously, all over the 
left but where do we where do we go from here like i i have a, i have a opinion on that but i i'm, I'm interested to see what, what you think about that what seemed to me to be the short-term move was to get behind the sanders campaign and then be in a situation where uh you had potentially a democratic president who was going to do the things necessary to make union organizing easier and increase union membership in such a way that would increase union bargaining power and influence and now that that is looking more and more like a foreclosed option I think right now, I mean, given the real context of the coronavirus, honestly, this is a hypothetically a situation where uh, organized labor could really make uh, some concrete demands because we're finding that the segment of the economy that the Democratic and Republican parties have focused on overwhelmingly uh, over the last 20 years and 30 years, the knowledge sector, it workers, we're realizing now that those jobs aren't real in any sense and that they don't contribute to the perpetuation of civilization because those people are home and people with real jobs, uh, jobs that are largely not organized, jobs that are largely low paid, are still out there because if they weren't, the whole thing would fall apart. Of course, that was always the case, but it's something that can be ignored when you don't have something like this happening. So hypothetically, this could be a situation where that newfound leverage could be used to demand recognition, like unit bargaining and things like that. The problem there is the problem, more generally, that workers are less organized than they've ever been, not just in the sense of not being members of unions, but not being co-workers, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. The service sector that we're finding to be so necessary for civilization to continue is one of the most atomized uh, labor forces there is with the smallest number of co-workers the, the least amount of you know social cohesion at work and so getting people in those situations to coordinate activity is difficult we, there are some skeletons of organizations that could presumably do that like the fight for 15 movement but it seems like the more likely scenario is that because this is such a crisis, people are going to, out of honestly a virtuous desire to, to help, they're going to do what, what we tell them to do. And I don't know what can intervene on that. Well, one thing I would hope Bernie Sanders does in the, in the coming weeks is, forgetting anything else regarding the campaign, is to come forward with some really bold, large-scale proposals to tackle the situation that go beyond the 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 necessary but insufficient things that are currently being talked about like cash uh, subsidies and rent and debt uh, suspension and things like that and talk about actual on the ground workers recognition uh, and 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 things like that and also the idea of mobilizing idle workers uh, in vital industries uh, but only so far as they can organize collectively Mm -hmm. so talking a lot about organizing both like unorganized groups but also like groups that labor movements really haven't had to organize a, a a body of workers in these kinds of environments before like i mean you look at just to take like a simple example like all the all the gig economy jobs like uber or like you know driving an amazon van that's a lot harder at least in my opinion to organize that kind of group of people who i think would benefit from it rather than like people on a factory floor you know i mean the movement weak as we weak as, weak as it is isn't even equipped to do that to, to do that yeah well that's the thing is that i mean these these capabilities have been 
intentionally undermined for the last 40 years. I mean, the, the metaphor I use is that it really feels like we're in a house where we've stripped all the wiring and copper pipes out to sell for meth or whatever, and now <laughs> we don't understand why the lights don't work and the toilet doesn't work. Right, I mean, right. Like, like, like we're, we're trying to rely on social structures that have been intentionally weakened and undermined to the degree that it's a question of whether they can withstand the stress test they're currently under. So obviously the the organized labor is is constantly under I don't want to say attack although that seems fair but you know opposition. Oh no, I yeah, it's fair. Um <laughs> so is there anything do you think that we can look to in history to see like well they've been beaten down but they they got up before. Like I mean a counterexample, I guess, would be the IWW, who who went into the 20th century having, I mean, a lot of power, and then 20 years, and they were gone, like virtually destroyed. Anything not like that? <laughs> I mean, the, the the that post that post World War One era, I think, is is a good one to point to. I like to think of that Eugene Debs quote uh, mm. that he said, you know, when he was imprisoned for the Espionage Act in 1918. And he said, the cross is bending and midnight is ending, is, is passing and joy cometh in the morning, which at the time was an absurd statement given that the labor movement was in the process of having its leadership dismantled by the Espionage Act and uh, the fact that World War I had destroyed the first Socialist International and that even in Russia, which had had a revolution, was, in, was fighting for its life. And the labor movement was about as weak as it had been since it was, it was founded. And then within another 20 years or another 10 years from there or i'm sorry about 15 um you know the you have the new deal you have the national labor relations board uh you have the beginning of the golden era of american labor and the reason for that was because of the great depression there's no other way to find explain it is that the mass economic uh, crisis created a situation where workers became more militant and more organized and willing to do things like sit down strikes and mass wildcat actions and, and essentially threaten the system from within. And I think we're headed towards something like that right now. I don't think anybody else, anybody is under any illusion that we're right. uh, in the process uh, of entering a tectonic shift in the citizens' relationship to the economy right now. And those are the kind of situations where labor traditionally has had an opportunity, not necessarily that they would succeed in seizing it, but an opportunity to assert uh, more control right so i guess the only the only thing that uh makes me nervous about that is like there's something in i don't know if it's uh, the american psyche or th there's just something that seems different than anywhere else wherein people do not want to rock the boat even if it means a positive change like you know people just do not want to and i'm i'm saying this very generally but like I, I see like despite the impending economic collapse, there's resistance to w widespread resistance in, in terms of normal people to taking any terms of any form of action. Well, yeah, it traditionally has been, of course. I mean, but the thing is, is that the context for the, the de degradation of labor over the last 40 years has been a context of easy credit and the consumer economy replacing worker autonomy. Mm-hmm. You don't get workplace control. You don't even really. You don't even get wages, but you get credit and you get things to buy with the credit. And that arrangement is looking very shaky right now. Yeah, 
if there is hope, it'll be in the fact that people just aren't going to have an alternative, and there's just not going to be anything to give anybody anymore. That that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm hopeful that that's that that's certainly the case. Yeah, I mean, but the thing, you know, there's things militating against it too. I mean, you know, just social atomization, as we've discussed, the the, the nature of work now, and also the fact that this is a such a emergency crisis situation, which is exactly the kind of such time when people tend towards being very compliant towards authority and authorities, and we have authorities now who are who are who have every interest in seeing labor exploited to the degree necessary to keep the lights on, uh, but not given any kind of role in their employment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that that's because of, of of fear, right? If you look at like the the news media, which has like a vested interest in you being both afraid and outraged at all times, because that's what makes them money. But they don't actually want you to you know do anything about it. Yeah, just consume more of their news, right? And be mad, and be <laughs> be outraged and afraid. Yeah, certainly. So there are certainly, as there always have been, a lot of forces working against us. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons for this, but w- would you be able to point to a, a primary cause or a good reason uh, for the labor decline of the last 70-ish years? I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons, but does one stick out to you? If you talk like about the formal legal structures of the economy, I think a lot of people talk, talk to the passage of ta- Taft-Hartley. Mm-hmm, definitely. Like the slow, slow-bleeding stab wound that at the time didn't seem, I mean, union density was kept going up at, directly after Taft-Hartley was passed, peaking in the late 50s, but it provided the context for which labor could be slowly bled of its energy and ability to organize effectively. And and, and around the same time as the Taft-Hartley passage, you had the purging of, of the communists from the CIO, which also sort of demobilized the most effective militants within the labor movement and essentially guaranteed that the labor movement would become clientist and business friendly in a way that would leave them un- incapable of standing up to capital when the crisis of uh, profitability arrived in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, that's, that's something that it's really interesting to look at is to see, I want to say the, the institutionalization of labor as sort of this like, it's there, but it's not really fundamentally challenging anything. It's just there to be there. Well, it's, it's there like a lot of these institutions, like the Democratic Party or whatever. They're, they're, it's there to provide legitimacy. Mm-hmm. It's there to provide legitimacy to the process. And it's there at a certain level. It's useful to management as a mechanism for maintaining dissent or keeping it relatively bottled by having a channel by which workers can complain and, and, and exercise a sense of control over the workplace, but which at the point of actual demands will be negotiated into ether. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so it, it's sort of, it's there to, to provide a, a, an excuse, like, look, we're pro-labor, we're allowing you, I guess, to have an outlet of sorts and then not really fundamentally change anything. Right. I, I think you mentioned before that right now labor feels like it doesn't have any other option but, you know, the Democratic Party. Do you see a future in which the Democrats, you know, nominate someone like, I don't know, maybe uh, Joe Biden or someone like that, (laughs) uh, who then, you know, gets washed in the general? Do you think that would be enough to maybe trigger um, kind of um, a mass exodus from the Democratic Party of, like, 
enough young progressive people to set up uh, a viable like left-wing party that would be more friendly to labor and organization in general? I've been thinking about that today because the Democratic Party in the last week, I think, has really wildly invalidated itself, wildly compromised any claim it has to being not just a party where people with working the working class can express their aspirations, but even just a functional political party. I mean, and so I feel the need to pressure and, and provide an alternative is important because we're seeing already a situation where in response to the crisis, Republican figures are advancing ideas for temporary universal income and things like that, which are being met by Democrats bargaining to their right uh, in terms of lower, lower amounts and, 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 uh, and means tests and things like that. And that does point to a party that is wildly incapable of meeting the moment. The problem is, is that we have democratic structures in this country that tend to, to enforce a two-party system. And then, with, then in, in addition to that, we have the fact that the two parties have essentially colluded at the state level to make ballot access very difficult for the very specific purpose of maintaining that system. I think that anybody hoping for like a short-term alternative is not likely, but I'm starting to wonder if it might be necessary to start building an alternative to start using platforms to promote it, just so that if the Democrats do end up undermining their credibility fatally, there is some alternative for people to tune to other than the Republicans essentially becoming like the Democratic, the liberal Democratic Party of Japan after World War II and, and being an eternal ruling party with different wings. Uh, does that does that alternative uh, look something like the DSA or are you thinking about something else? Well, I, I mean, the DSA, the problem with the DSA, and I think the DSA is, has been a positive force. I think it's necessary, but I think by now it's pretty clear that it draws disproportionately from a, a demographic that is not really connected to the jobs that we generally refer to as labor jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, not mm-hmm. even, I mean, forget indus- industrial labor, but like even service industry. And so that limits, I think, its usefulness in the current context. I mean, I don't want to get too autonomous or whatever here, but it does feel like at a certain point, people are just going to have to start asserting their own rights in their own workplaces mm-hmm. and then start coalescing along the lines of a, a sort of a broad, sort of a chartist demand for reform. I don't really think that America at this point has the social cohesion, I guess the word is what I would imagine, it, mm-hmm. to to see a volunteer or cadre org like DSA or even PSL or whatever, they're not a cadre org, but like PSL is a cadre org. I don't think any of those really have the likelihood of scaling up given the social barriers to people doing things like going to meetings and whatever. Mm-hmm. It would have to be a purely workplace-based resistance. And I think that's one of the things that really is a big barrier for any sort of social change is that all these systems are set up to to maintain themselves. Yes. And, and so any any change in terms of like workers movements, yeah, you can get I don't know, a factory restaurant whatever over here having a strong union presence and having, you know, whatever, but then to try and scale that up is is challenging because now yes. You, you know, it just gets exponentially harder. Yeah. Well, no, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the only thing we have going for us is just yeah, for frankly, immiseration. <laughs>
immiseration and what looks to be like a wildly significant crisis of capital production that has traditionally honestly been the only time that labor has made big gains. I mean, in, in good times, labor tends to stultify. That's not even that's not just true in the U.S. It's, it's true basically everywhere that they have been able to get a place at the table. You mentioned you sort of specifically said like even in the U.S. there is does is there something about labor in the U.S. that makes it different or more difficult or less difficult than like Europe, say, or is it just historically we've had a weaker labor movement? Well, there have been a, there are a bunch of things that contribute to America's specifically weak labor movement. One, of course, is the fact that the United States had the most violent labor movement of any Western nation by a significant degree. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the argument that comparing the United States to Europe, which a lot of people like to do because of the similar levels of you know development or whatever or GDP, is not really very accurate. We're really just more the richest American country. The whole social structure and history of the United States is much more similar to the other countries of the Western Hemisphere, of the Americas, than it is of Europe. And one of those things is a wildly violent labor movement in terms of wildly violent repression against labor. It's not something you see in the histories of the labor movement in Western Europe at all. And that contributed to it. The existence of the frontier, the ability to have a constant steam vent for social unrest, and, of course, uh, race uh, and the ability to play uh, the working class against each other based on racial prejudice. Those are all things that have made it much harder to organize in the U.S. than other places, certainly in Europe. Yeah, I mean, you just said it there. One of the things we looked at in the second episode was just how, like, immigrants from basically anywhere in Europe would come to America, you know, obviously looking for jobs, whatever, and they would be sent in as strike breakers with no no knowledge of that. Yeah. And just be like, oh, cool, a job, right? Like, yes. And then, you know, just sort of the, these tensions drummed up between otherwise between parties that would otherwise have solidarity, have no yeah, reason a, a, to. A natural allegiance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is uniquely challenging here. But I do think that a number of the, the contradictions that in the past have made it harder for union labor to organize have been resolved a bit. And so I think in some ways it will be easier now. But, you know, th- those those issues now pale in comparison to the fact that we now live in a, a completely asocial techno-panopticon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's, that's something I mm-hmm. haven't really even thought about. What do you mean? I love sitting in my room all day and self-quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like people are so isolated and so alone now. That makes it very hard to build solidarity and because like, I'm just going to go to work and, you know, get my eight hours of whatever I'm doing in. And then I don't have the energy to care about the conditions or the or working with people to make those better. I just I just I just want to get home and relax and I don't know, turn on MSNBC or whatever and get angry. But but and but once again, that that's why this is an opportunity as scary as it is, because one thing that's definitely going to happen in the coming months is people are going to re relearn the requirements and the necessity of the social. It seems paradoxical because everybody is being quarantined, but we're also <laughs> needing to do things like, you know, requisition hotels and turn them into hospitals and like suspend suspend a large degree of the commodified relationships that we have because people aren't going to have the money to do that. And that has the possibility of, of, of re- kind of rewiring people's relationships to each other. But once again, there's no way of really predicting how that's going to happen yet. It's very early. 
It is. It is as Homer Simpson would call it—a Christ-eternity. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is. It's it's a unique challenge, but I guess there's there's nothing there's nothing else to do but face it and and like make the best the, the best possible opportunity that mm-hmm. the labor movement has in recent history, at least my memory. You know, so I mean, other than I guess two thousand eight was a chance, but. We 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 obungled that. We we obungled it. Yes, we obungled the heck out of it. Um, well, is 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 there is there an opportunity in the coronavirus, you know, epidemic right now to expose some of the the horrors that working people face? Yeah, absolutely. There's a. I think there's there's definitely like more attention towards things like hourly wage and stuff like that you know the, the, the things that we guarantee to people who are laid off or whatever but i haven't seen a lot of talk about things like maternity leave or you know other things like that i mean right now it's too early to say anything and that's that sounds like a cop-out but uh, like i've been saying anybody who's telling you it, they, they know what's going to happen is either suffering from dunning kruger syndrome or they're trying to sell you something <laughs> <laughs> yeah owen, owen was saying to me um yesterday after we uh, after uh, he had listened to the, the the most recent episode of the the Beltway Garage. Oh, no. he, it was just like I hope I hope we don't we don't um, just it doesn't our conversation doesn't just devolve into you know everything is hopeless we know nothing <laughs> nihilism. Well, that's just it. I I don't think those are the same thing. Saying you don't know what's going to happen it does not is not nihilistic. Like it, it's mm. it's two sided. Like I said, the Christianity. To assume that because it's the unknown, it will only be bad. Yes, that's that's nihilism. I think embracing the fact that you don't know, and therefore using that the fluidity to try to do whatever you can to build capacity is hopeful. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I've certainly been getting mad a lot lately at just the the, the sheer <laughs> me <open. laughs> at me just just, just right, say it please. I know, and yeah, no, uh, at like the sheer openness of how arbitrary all these uh, all the you know like countries that are just saying no uh, uh, we never mind we're just suspending rent or you know whatever is 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 that enough of a motivating force of a of a push to enough people uh, i i i'm certainly one of those people who's like mad at that and will take act happily take action well i mean it's not going to be an option is the thing like like one of the big things that has stopped people from asserting their their um humanity is just that they're tired uh, that they they want the easiest way to get through a day that just is a process of humiliation and degradation but is still fundamentally something they recognize as life in in a in a society to quote the joker (laughs) (laughs) we're coming up on something that's going to be a completely different paradigm people talking about oh you know you you go to work and then you come home and then you watch netflix i mean i don't know if that's on the agenda for anybody very soon that's true. So how people are going to respond to that drastic a change in the expectations of their circumstances and the quality of life, that is yet to be seen. That's something that we haven't been able to predict because the story of America in the 20th and 21st century has been people being immiserated slowly like the frog in the pot and, and having their misery sort of attenuated by spectacle and resentment. But you know, there needs to also be a baseline degree of social expectation there to build on and that that might very well be going away and if that's the case no one knows how people are going to respond mm. right we could see yeah like the rise of a xenophobia to a degree we haven't seen before or, or, or it's it's very 
fluid, but it's not necessarily bad. It's just the social um, underpinnings are going to be revealed. And there's reasons to be worried about it just by virtue of how people have been conditioned to respond to crisis. But as I said, no one's even been conditioned to respond to anything like this. So, so yeah, yeah, we're, we're at a crossroads. I guess it really, it really is socialism or barbarism now, right? What is a what is a what is a best case scenario look like over like the next twenty years? Say, best case scenario is that the economy essentially is put under some sort of emergency socialism in order to maintain basic functionality, which is going to be necessary, uh, just because. There's no room for the profit right now. There's no room for the margin. Essentially, the mar—I mean, the margin was shrinking anyway. But now there's, there's anywhere you want to put a margin is going to be a roadblock to basic social function. So the best case scenario is is that that asserts a new normal. It asserts a new reality. And and because I mean, I think we've seen over the course of the frustrating course of this presidential campaign that one of the chief obstacles to people believing in the agenda that Sanders brought forth was that they thought it was impossible. They think that he is uh, selling them something. It's the same thing that hurt Corbyn in the UK. Is The reason people were willing to vote on something like Brexit over you know questions of redistribution and, and, and worker control is because they didn't think those were going to happen, but they thought Brexit was. And we could find out very quickly that all these things that we've been t- ground into our head, and especially hardly hard ground into our head by the media to resist Sanders, uh, are actually very easy to do uh, and, and are not impossible and don't destroy the economy and, in fact, make things work easier. The hope, the be- best case scenario is, is that changes people's relationship to those ideas, makes them willing to fight for them, uh, and assert that when things go, quote, quote, back to normal, that they don't go away. Yeah, so I get, uh, unless there's anything... Um, any, you want to say, Matt, at, at, as sort of a final thought? I don't have anything. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, shrug emoji, <laughs> I guess. Shrug emoji. Yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for um, listening to this whole series. Um, it's It's been a ride. So hopefully this will encourage people to maybe take action or, or just do something. Um, so yeah, with that, um, do something, do anything, really. S- somebody do something, please. <laughs> um, so yeah, with that, um, thank you all for listening. <laughs>